Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. And welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara, and as always, I am joined with my ghoul friend, Jessica. Hello. Hello. And today we are going to be starting a two-parter here on another cult. It's about that time. We are going to be talking about the sex cult that came into the news just a couple years ago and is still in the news. It is called Nexium. And it is an interesting journey, to say the least. <laughs> it, oh, my God. For sure, Yeah. Buckle in. But as you guys might see, this is going to be a two-parter. So basically how this is going to work is we are going to lay foundation in this first episode. I'm going to give you a background on the founders of the cult. And then Jessica's going to kind of dive into actually like the inner workings and what was going on and everything. And then in part two... We'll go into some more of that, and then when shit hits the fan and current stuff going on with it. <laughs> Lots of things. <laughs> but if you are new here, hello and welcome. If you are a returning spookster, thank you so much for supporting the show and listening. We love you guys so much. If you would like to hang out with us on social media, if you are not, you can head to the link tree in the show notes. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is 3 Spooked Girls, And we also have our Facebook group that we love so, so much. It is called 3 Spooked Girls Official. We are almost to 700 members now. So that's super exciting. I feel like we were just being excited about 500. So thank you guys for coming to hang out with us. I know. <laughs> if you would like to support the show, you can head to patreon.com slash three spooked girls again in the link tree as well. For as little as a dollar, you get one bonus episode a month. Two and up gets three and five and up gets three plus a video episode. So they get four. They're getting all kinds of three spook girl stuff weekly along with like live streams and there's all kinds of other tiers going up from there that gets extra swag and other fun perks as well. And as you guys might have noticed, we are having a special live event for our second podiversary in September. That link is in the link tree as well and pinned in our Facebook group. So you can check it out if you want to. Our general admission is $10. And then our VIP ticket, which includes like a Q&A panel type thing after the show and also some swag for $20. And if you're a current 25 and up patron, you get a free general admission ticket. Just reach out to us that you would like to come and we'll get that to you. If you want to upgrade, you just need to pay 
pay for the general admission price, just as an extra little thank you. And we are going to be donating 10% of those proceeds over to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. So it'll be a fun time to celebrate and also, you know, raise some money for a good cause. So definitely come check that out. And thank you to everyone who's purchased tickets already. We are so excited for the event. Yes, I am so excited. I can't wait. Yeah. All right. Well, we are going to go ahead and take a quick promo break and we will be right back with the drink of the week. Are you into the secret histories of exorcisms, Christmas massacres, killdozers, and concert disasters? How about haunted mansions, the Philadelphia Experiment, the Dorm of Death, or candy corn? Then you're going to love Ghost Town, a hilarious and sometimes not so hilarious twice-weekly podcast. On Wednesdays, we discuss the secret history of an abandoned, unexplored, haunted, or mysterious place from anywhere in the world. And on Fridays, we cover an amazing historical failure from any time in history. Ghost Town is 100% safe and legal. We guarantee it. It's also fun, spooky, and can contain a riot, a massacre, a murder, or an arch deluxe. I'm Rebecca Lieb. I'm Jason Horton. And and this this is Ghost Town. Town. And you can find Ghost Town wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back, guys. So I'm going to give it to Jessica so she can tell us what our drink this week is. So since we are talking about a cult, I thought I would look on the wonderful Pinterest and find a cult related drink. And I thought I was going to find like a cult cocktail, like, you know, like a Manhattan or something like that. Mm -hmm. But no, I found a drink. It's called the Cargo Cult. It's a little tiki drink and it's really adorable. And you definitely want to go check out the recipe for this one because there's a lot in it. It'll be up tomorrow on our socials. So just check it out then. I love that it's a tiki drink because in our time yesterday, I saw these, the child or baby Yoda tiki cups, the little ones. I saw those. Oh my God. I was about to be like, I didn't see who posted it. And I was about to be like, Tara, we need these. And then I was like, oh, Tara posted this. She's ahead of me. Yes. So I was like, perfect. Oh my God. Well, we're just going to go ahead and jump right into it. So like I said, I am going to start us off with the background on some of these key players we have here. Now, the founder, I can't ever say his last name, right? No matter how many times I watch videos or his annoying ass talk. I'm going to say it like once and it'll probably be wrong. It's fine. We'll be okay, guys. I promise. Nobody at me because I'm aware. (laughs) (laughs) One of the founders, his name is Keith Rainier, and he was born on August 26, 1960 in Brooklyn, New York, to James and Vera. James was an advertiser in New York City, and Vera was a ballroom dance instructor. When Keith was five years old, the family ended up moving from Brooklyn to Suffren, New York. Then just a few years later, when Keith was eight, his parents would get divorced and Keith stayed in the custody of his dad. Now, according to James, his dad, the reason for the divorce was essentially because Vera was an alcoholic and it was just a toxic situation. Okay. Now, like many of these people that we cover, Keith did display some red flag behaviors at an early age. One classmate of his did an interview and talked about how she shared some quote, compromising information about one of her sisters in front of Keith when they were 10 years old. Mm. So like fourth grade, fifth grade ish. Mm -hmm. And she had said that Keith told her, quote, you know, it's like I have this little bottle of poison and I can hold it over your head. I just don't think your parents or your sister would be very happy if I told them, end quote. Holy shit. (laughs) 
It's a young one. Right? That's like coming in hot as a fucking 10 year old shit. And she also claimed that Keith would call her and taunt her. And on the phone, he would just say, little bottles, little bottles. So blackmailing already. And uh, that's a theme. Yeah. We'll both talk about blackmailing shit later. (laughs) There had to be some sort of like fundamental thing when he was a kid. He had to have watched that happen because I think blackmail is something you have to be taught how to do right yeah you don't just know how to do that as a child at fucking 10 right like that's a very complicated thing because you have to like think the long game Mm-hmm. like if i hold this information on you you're not gonna tell but like there's also at 10 there's that like instinct that if you tell like a teacher is gonna punish the kid or a parent is gonna punish the kid for that kid misbehaving yeah So Keith has said that at 12, he read the book called Second Foundation by Isaac Asimov. And that book is described as a mind control themed work of literature. So that's good. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. A how-to for psychopaths. Exactly. And he also said this is what inspired him with his, quote, work with Nexium later on in life. Mm, Okay. Yeah. And with, you know, cult leaders and stuff, there's always a lot of rumors and like kind of mystery and stuff like that about them. Mm -hmm. He had that, too. So really what I mean by that is there's all these claims about how amazing he was or is and he's still alive. Yeah. So I guess is and smart and all of that. And basically, you know, this all puts him on a pedestal, which is what he wants, obviously. Right. Theme of his life for fucking sure. Literally. An account from his father in terms of all of this was that, quote, what we did is we told Keith how gifted and intelligent he was, and it was almost like a switch went off. And suddenly, overnight, he turned into like Jesus Christ, and that he was superior and better than everybody, like he was a deity. He said that it was dramatic and that profound. He said it went right to his head, and the he he's referring to is Keith. So that's fun. Good job, Dad. You added to the psychoness. Right? Like, you couldn't just let your kid be like, I don't know. He is such an interesting person. I think they could have been mean to him and it probably would have somehow like, they're just trying to make me great. That just seems to be his personality. Mm hmm. There was more claims made by Keith saying that when he was just a year old, he was speaking in full sentences. (laughs) Sorry. No. (laughs) In that as a young child, he also taught himself high school math in 19 hours at the age of 12. And then by 13, he had learned three years of college math and several computer languages. Does he have witnesses to back this insane shit up? Probably not. Got it. But what was interesting about him claiming all of this was when they talk about his college career, it's noted that he graduated with a GPA of 2.26 from Rennesleer, probably saying that wrong, Polytechnic Institute. And now, like, obviously, there's nothing wrong with that GPA. But if he's supposedly a super genius, wouldn't he have gotten like a 4.3 or however, whatever you cap out at for all of that stuff? On the other hand, of obviously, people who are like up his ass are going to argue that his type of genius may not have been in like academia or book smarts, you know, and it was like a different kind of genius type of thing. 
But uh, I think this dude's just full of shit. So I'm like, okay, whatever. (laughs) What I was going to say is that a lot of times when genius types feel like they're not being challenged, they just don't rise to the occasion. Like that happens with people where they're like, this is stupid. Why would I do this? Yeah, like they're bored. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they're above it. Like, why would I even give my time and attention? And like, we know that school is basically like you learn something, you regurgitate it on a test. And then you move on. Yeah, exactly. So could go either way. But like I said, I think he's full of shit. It's fine. I mean, I think he's full of shit, too. So So in terms of like his genius, the kind of like proof he has was he did a certain IQ test. So in June of 1988, he achieved a high score on Ronald K. Hofflin's mega test, which is said to be a, quote, unsupervised 48-question test published in the April 1985 issue of Omni magazine. Now, it's been widely criticized by people being like, this isn't legit or super valid kind of thing. With that, in the 1989 edition of Guinness Book of World Records, they actually highlight the Hofflin Research Group as, quote, the most exclusive ultra-high IQ society. And, of course, they listed Keith along with Marilyn Voss Savant and Eric Hart as the highest scoring members of the Mega Society. So, basically, he has what he wants again and is getting recognition for being, you know, a super genius. So that didn't help. And, you know, obviously in like the 80s and 90s, Guinness Book of World Records was hella popular. Shit. I think they even had a show in like the 2000s-ish. They did. And I remember when those books would come out each year, my brother would get them for Christmas. And it was always like, you know, 1998 or the 1999. I'm like, how do we know that that's for that year? Because it's this year. It's very confusing. Right. Basically, it held a lot of like credibility to the general public, essentially. And anytime people talked about him, they always said things, you know, like putting him up on that pedestal. And I grabbed a quote from Tony Natalie's previous husband. We'll get into her in a minute. When he was trying to convince her to meet him, he said, quote, he has a 240 IQ, triple major graduate from RPI, pianist, cyclist, East Coast judo champion, and he just wants to save the world. I also thought it was really funny because he was like, I was a concert pianist by the time I was 13. And I'm like, uh, there are definitely prodigies that are like four. So you can like, <laughs> right. And also it's like he would make these claims that are super easy to fact check. Do we even know that he played the piano? I mean, that was the first thing I thought of was like, did anyone ever witness him sit down and play the piano? Right. Like if he sat down and played the piano and he was fantastic, I'd be like, okay, I believe you. But like, if like I walked to you, Tara, and I was like, I played the piano very well. It's like, I'm amazing. I'm the best there ever been. You'd be like, bitch, let's find a piano and play me something. Exactly. (laughs) It was like people in his life, like he would say things and then they would just be like, we accept that without proof. (laughs) And I'm like, why? Yeah, exactly. So my question when I was reading about this guy was, what all did he do previous to Nexium as an adult? Well, he did a few things. And first, let me just say that Keith loves him some MLMs. Yeah, he does. 
Very much so. And if you don't know what that is, it's companies that follow a multi-level marketing type of structure, aka pyramid schemes. If you work for an MLM and you're listening, do not come at me. I just wanted to explain. In the 80s, Keith was involved with Amway, which is an MLM that sells like health, beauty, home care products, that kind of thing. Along with this, he was also super into learning about Scientology. Dun, dun, dun. Yes, which, you know, we all know what Scientology is. And neuro-linguistic programming, which is described as a, quote, pseudoscientific approach to communication, personal development, and psychotherapy created by Richard Bandler and John Grinder in California in the 1970s. Hmm. Also, on top of all these business ventures he had, he also worked as a computer programmer at the New York State's Division of Parole. Oh, so he was able to contact people who were very susceptible to like bad influences. Got it. Jesus. <laughs> Also during the 80s, in 1984, when Keith was 24, for reference, y'all, he had a sexual relationship with a minor. Her name was Gina Hutchinson, and she was 15. Oh, God. Yeah. I thought you were going to say, like, 17. I mean, that, that doesn't make it any better. No. I was like, okay, like, 17, like, it's a no-no, but, like, it's, no, it's very much a no-no. Yeah. You know, but it's like, you're like, okay, but, like, once you, like, move anything past 17, it's like, oh, my God, you have, like, zero excuse to even think they were 18. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I know that, like, 17-year-olds will be like, I'm 18. You're like, no, bitch, you 17 until that magic day happens. <laughs> Yeah. So in terms of that, Gina's sister Heidi did an interview. Pretty much everybody around Keith, once shit hits the fan, they all start spilling tea. Mm -hmm. So a lot of interviews, you know. Yeah, it's true. Gina's sister Heidi, she did an interview with Times Union talking about this relationship. Basically, there had been an incident where Heidi found Keith climbing into Gina's bedroom window. Holy shit. And confronted them because, you know, good sister would do that because he's a fucking grown ass man. And she said Keith told her Gina was a, quote, Buddhist goddess that was meant to be with him, end quote. It was also noted that Gina would drop out of school to continue their relationship and would end up working at a company that was his during the 90s, which I will talk about in a second. But then sadly, later, she died by suicide. Oh. Yeah. But to scoot back over to the 90s, like I said, there was a certain business she worked at that he had. So in 1990, he started a new endeavor again. And he opened up a company and it was called Consumer Byline Inc. No shocker, this was an MLM through and through. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very complicated MLM, too. It is. And I'm not going to go too deep into the process, but I'll give you guys like the overview. Like, it's just it's too much. It's too much. Right. While it was in operation, it's noted to have brought in over 250,000 customers and $33 million. It's crazy. That is crazy. And so basically, here's how it worked. Per an article I found, it said, for a $219 yearly fee, members are promised exclusive low prices on everything from automobiles to legal services and skincare products and can cancel at any time. Affiliates, whether members or not, sell memberships in exchange for commissions, screams MLM. That's the gist of what it is. That's the least complicated way to explain that. Right. Others started to notice this as well, that this was, you know, kind of sketch. And authorities started getting complaints on this company. It was said by Nancy Connell, who's a spokesman for the or was a spokesman 
probably not now, for the New York Attorney General's Investor Protection Bureau that, quote, we've gotten 16 complaints or inquiries in the Albany area, half from people wondering if this is an investment they should make and half were complaints from people saying that they are not receiving what they thought they should have for their money. And they were also being looked at by authorities in other states as well, including Arkansas and Maine. And actually, the Arkansas Attorney General ended up suing Consumer Byline Inc. for, quote, deceptive trade practices on February 3rd of 1992. And it was said they're essentially operating what appears to be an illegal pyramid. And this quote's from Perrin Jones. He was the spokesman for the Arkansas Attorney General. He also said everything depends on you bringing in more and more people until the thing collapses under its own weight, end quote. This business did not last long. It would end up shut down in 1993 because of all of this. And then, you know, they were in court for a long time and all of this. And they essentially settled out. In 1996, Keith signed a consent order that permanently barred him from promoting, offering, or granting participation in a chain of distribution scheme. And he had to pay a $40,000 fine. Can I just say my favorite part of that MLM is his commercial? Oh, God. Yeah. For it. (laughs) One, it has the ma- the main male character from Green Acres. And so I'm like, what a random, right? like a random celebrity. And it's so awkward because the guy walks up and he's like, this is really a great idea. And, he, and <laughs> Keith is like, it really is. It even amazes me. I can't. Q, corny turn to the camera, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, what the hell just happened? Okay. Right? Oh, I fucking can. I cannot. But, of course, during all this, what was Keith doing in his free time? He decided to open another MLM anyway. Of course. Dude's got a problem. So in 1994, he started the National Health Network, which was basically a vitamin type of MLM situation. Mm. And along with that, he ended up opening a health store with his then-girlfriend, Tony Natalie. And this didn't last long either. It ended up all failing and shutting down by 99. Makes sense. Now, Miss Tony, she does play a part in the story, and she actually has a book, which I'll talk about in a second. She originally met him because, like I mentioned earlier with the quote from her ex-husband, she was going to go attend a seminar for Consumer Byline back when that was a thing. Now, the husband was all about it. Like I said, he was like doting on the man and bragging and all that. And that like he had to convince Tony to go because she was like, eh, I don't really give a fuck about this. But <laughs> <laughs> they went. And so according to Tony, in person, quote, Keith was unassuming, even shy, surprisingly short. He had rosy cheeks and a bounce in his step a mullet-esque page boy haircut, and George Costanza glasses. Oh, he did. He did, yeah, before like he updated himself. He reminded her of little Lord Fauntleroy. He had an arcade game, Vanguard, in his garage, and he looked like it. <laughs> or in short, she also described him as a geek. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. Here's the thing with Keith. He is exactly what she said. But the thing is effective cult leaders it's not about their looks so much as it is their persona because they're able to read and captivate people and know how to mirror people and give them what they want because that's the thing with cults is people don't just join for the fuck of it they're joining a community that's giving them something that's missing from their lives a thousand percent Mm -hmm. and he absolutely knew how to do that So Tony and her then-husband were actually top sellers at Consumer Byline, and I'm assuming that's how they kind of started rubbing elbows with Keith. 
more and more. And at first, Tony and Keith were just friends. And she said that he helped her quit smoking and that they always spent hours on the phone together. They would talk about life things like her marriage, what goals she had, you know, work and things like that. And she had also said, quote, Keith told her it was a way to heal, to relive her memories of childhood sexual assault over and over and over again. When he told her to leave her husband, she did. When he told her that they were fated to be together, she believed him. And she did. She left her husband, took her kid, and went to be with Keith. Oh, a thousand percent. I watched interviews with her. And, like, you can even tell, like, to this day, like, there's this pain. Yeah. I don't think she's over Keith for fucking sure. Now, we probably watched similar things. So in an interview I was watching, she said by 1997, that's when their relationship started getting rocky. And, you know, that was like the beginning of the end. Mm -hmm. And this is fun fact. The same year he met another key player called Nancy Salzman. We'll get into her in a minute. And... Just to kind of wrap up like the brief story on them. So basically with Tony and Keith, their relationship would end up being done by 1999. And they went through a bunch of like ugly court hearings and things like that. And he put Tony through a lot of shit, which also makes it more heartbreaking that like you can tell how she is, like how she's still like maybe not through it. I don't know. But Tony ended up claiming she was like a victim of harassment with him. And then in January 2003, federal judge Robert Littlefield implied Keith was using the legal suit just to harass Tony. In his decision, he the judge wrote, This matter smacks a lot of jilted fellows' attempt at revenge or retaliation against his former girlfriend, with many attempts at tripping her up along the way. Basically, he's fucking with her just because he can. Later, Tony told Forbes magazine that she believed that, quote, Rainier brainwashed her. He was telling her she was put on Earth to carry his baby, the baby who would alter the course of history, end quote. But supposedly, Keith was like, that's ridiculous and not rational. That's his direct words. So that's just like a little taste. And uh, we'll get more into that in a minute. Yeah. For those of you that enjoy reading, though, Tony has a book called The Program Inside the Mind of Keith Rainier and the Rise and Fall of Nexium. So you can check it out. She has a website. You can probably get it on Amazon and probably a lot of places. But yeah. So I'm going to introduce somebody else now. Now, I mentioned her name a minute ago. It was Nancy Salzman. So Nancy was described as a nurse and therapist that was a trained practitioner of hypnotism and neurolinguistic programming, something Keith was interested in. Very much so. <laughs> yes. And when I was reading about her, they talked about the programming and it was described as techniques of mirroring another individual to create deep rapport, which, like I mentioned earlier, that's a very handy tool for cult leaders. Like they need that. So he chose her for a reason. Oh, for sure. She was definitely the yin to his yang. Mm hmm. And actually, what was interesting was the reason Keith even met her was because Tony was actually reaching out to her for help with Keith. Because like I said, they met around the time that like shit started to be like imploding. And Tony had talked about it in an article and she said the following. Nancy said, you're so wonderful. How can I help you? So I said, well, you can help me with my boyfriend. He has grandiose ideas and his hours were becoming erratic again. She listened and then said, oh, that's easy. I can help you. He's a sociopath. And then they met four days later. Tony said she came out with glazed eyes and gave me the quote, you don't know who he is. And she said she replied to her or and she just thought like, wow, there goes another one. And it's like they were both on the same wavelength. She obviously didn't think he was a sociopath. And then also 
that just displays like he knows how to connect with people as well. So he got her into his like clutches. Oh, for sure. I think if anything we've learned from cult leaders is like they have this like charisma about them that people are like, like we said earlier, he's like, I was a concert pianist at 13. It's like, okay, sir, I believe you. No proof needed. Mm hmm. And every other person on the planet, you'd be like, I need proof. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And just on top of that, Nancy is said to have described Keith as her spiritual guide. And he became like, obviously, a very important person to her because she tried to help. I don't know if you want to say good or bad, but she tried to help them out. She, quote, treated Tony with therapy and then also gave them $50,000 for their health store that they had. Oh, okay. There's a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. So also in 1998, there is this lady. Her name is Christine Marie Melanakos. That's probably wrong. Sorry, guys. She was Mrs. Michigan in 1995. Ooh. Fun fact for you. And she had said that Keith, quote, explained how there was a profound event that would often happen to women who became intimate with him. Sometimes they would even see a blue light. Ultimately, I agreed to be intimate with Keith. And it was just like he said. I even saw a blue light. I don't think I told him so. I remember thinking, wow, my brain is really susceptible to the power of suggestion. Also, he could have had a blue light somewhere in the room and like (laughs) had it turned on. I mean, timers were a thing back then, so it's possible. Right. So like I said, Keith and Nancy worked together to find the cult. They founded Executive Success Programs, which was a personal development company and was said to offer a range of techniques aimed at self-improvement. And uh, spoiler, this a few years later, they decided to rebrand their programs and it was under the name of Nexium now. Not to be confused with the, like, heartburn medicine. Yes, not that. I read that fucking hundred times. So with that, I'm going to hand it to Jessica to tell us about Nexium. So the first thing that you need to really truly understand about Nexium is that their trainings, quote unquote, are trade secrets. Because mm-hmm. like how it works is the first level is you like look and you see like the executive success programs and you're like, oh, OK. And then there's like an additional. So first and foremost, know that once you enter Nexium, you are signing a non-disclosure agreement. And just to be honest... NDAs are great when you're doing shady ass shit because no one can talk about it without legally being held liable. So basically you enter it. It's like Fight Club. Like you can't talk about what happens at Nexium. We know some things. We know that it was like a self-help group. There was a lot of rituals. Like when you would walk into a meeting, like the higher ups would be wearing like different colored sashes. And that's like how you could tell who was what rank within the organization. Though I had a very, like, I looked, it's a very hard thing to crack this nugget of what color went to what. You have to look at it like this. They were saying they were building this, like, self-help group and this, like, support system, but they were building a cult, whether they knew they were doing that or not. And half the time, like, let's be real, like, cult leaders don't realize they're building a cult. They think they're just building this community that they fervently believe in 100%. And then other people are like, you a cult. (laughs) (laughs) And I think what it basically came down to is they didn't want other people outside of this community knowing what was going on because then they could steal it. And let's be real. This was very successful. Like Tara talked about Tony, like how she was smoking and Keith helped her quit smoking. And there were people who were like, there was one guy who was like, I was claustrophobic. Like I would freak out if I was like in a traffic jam. 
and I went to these trainings and I'm no longer claustrophobic and I can be in traffic jams. So like they were working, but it's because it was this pseudoscience. It's like what Tara was saying. It's like a mixture of hypnosis and suggestive language. He's like, you're no longer claustrophobic. And one of the things that they do is everything comes back to like the rational inquiry. And it was to facilitate like personal and professional development. Also, one of the things that they teach you in Nexium is that you should ignore your gut instincts because your gut instincts are what prevent you from like moving on in life. Mm. Right. And that's not true. Your gut instinct is there to like make you understand danger. Like if I were to walk outside, like if I was visiting Tara and I were to walk outside and see a bear, my gut instinct would be to go back in the house. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) According to Nexium, I should not be afraid of that bear and like keep on going on my day because fear is what's holding me back. It's not necessarily true. Well, (laughs) Tara mentioned earlier, like in 2003, Nexium came under some hot water. And like, this is like really soon after it was developed. We're not talking like decades later. We're talking like within five years of this being like established. It was interesting. But a guy got involved and his name is Rick Allen Ross. Rick Ross. Not that Rick Ross. Uh, (laughs) But just as much of a baller. Let's put it that way. He is a deprogrammer and he's a cult specialist. He's the founder and executive director of the Cult Education Institute, and he was contacted by several members, like several family members of members of Nexium. And just to give you like a history, he was one of the doctors who helped deprogram the Waco people. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. I watched an interview with him and they're like, how many have you done? And he's like, I've done like thousands of deprogrammings. Wow. And he says it takes three to four days and eight hour sessions with family and friends to break the brainwashing, quote unquote. And like, let's let's give a round of applause to Forbes magazine because they like literally busted open this story. Dude, yes. (laughs) Them in New York Times are the MVPs. (laughs) Oh, my God. So much. So basically, there was a woman by the name of Stephanie Franco. I do not believe she's related to James or Dave. (laughs) Just saying. And she left and like because like her family were like, you have to get out because they were concerned. So they hired Rick Ross to come in and like deprogram her. Well, during this deprogramming, she handed over the manual, coveted training, Nexium training manual, which I looked on his website and I couldn't find. But here's also the kicker. Like if you go on his website, like dear God, he has like written about, they have written about like every single thing that happens. So if you want to like literally deep dive into Nexium for now into the end of time, there's like probably a hundred articles on there. It was very overwhelming. So basically... He then takes this manual and posts it online. And of course, Keith is like, no. So he files a lawsuit and the lawsuit is known as Nexium Corp versus Ross Institute, alleging copyright infringements for publishing excerpts of content from its manual in three articles commissioned by the cult investigator Rick Allen Ross and posted on his website. So that's like the official thing. Basically, like he looked through the manual and he could see like it had expansive brainwashing and it wasn't just Rick who was in trouble, like Stephanie was getting in trouble with this because she was like a co-defendant. 
And she was in trouble because she signed a non-disclosure agreement that she would not give any of this information out. And she did. So like this tells you like how much, like how close they keep shit to their chest with this group because they were willing to like go after this person. And that's really how they they were. They would go after people who would get in their way. So basically Forbes found this out that there was this lawsuit going and they were like, hell yeah, we're going to get into this. They actually ended up talking to Tony Natalie as well and about like her brainwashing stuff. They were talking about how it had like remnants of like Scientology and EST, like all that kind of stuff. However, like I thought this was really funny. It's like, unlike EST, this is a quote, unlike EST, which famously discouraged students from using the <laughs> using the bathroom during sessions, executive success offers plenty of breaks. <laughs> oh, good. At least there's something positive. <laughs> so S- Stephanie Franco was a New Jersey social worker and she signed up for the class and she spent plus expenses like food and that kind of stuff for the five-day class in Albany. And basically her her half-brother was like, you should do this because it's about like building yourself up and everything like that. And so she did it. And then she got, you know, friends and family and as well as herself were concerned. So that's why they hired Rick. And basically it just didn't go well. But ultimately... It got thrown, the case got thrown out because judges were like, are you serious? He didn't, like, yes, she gave it to him, but, like, there's more of, like, an ethical question here. Yeah. Also, you have to look at it like this, is that at this point in time, the people in Nexium, Keith and Nancy, were telling the people in Nexium, you know what? Like, if stuff, bad stuff comes out about us, it's all lies. They actually were like, when people used to talk about Nelson Mandela being like, you know, this radical and he wasn't, he was a criminal, like they would publish that kind of shit, but he was really this good guy. They were like, that's what this is. And they were like, I mm, know. Oh but this also brought in around these articles because Vanity Fair basically wrote an article based off of the Forbes article. Basically, there were other people and you're probably thinking like, that's a lot of money, like $2,100 for like a five day course. That's really expensive. A lot of people don't even spend that much on like school semester. But they basically brought in these these new people that you will talk about in a minute. And it will be the Brofman sisters. And they basically came in. And if you're like, I don't know who those people are, but they are kind of important to our lives in the world of people who drink because they are the heiresses to the Seagram's liquor company. And so what was happening is that they were coming in and giving Nexium, a.k.a. Keith and Nancy, like a shit ton of money. But like I said, training was very pricey. It basically from first like a 16 day course and they were like 14 hours a day for 16 days. You would pay like seventy five hundred dollars for a lot of people. That's a car. Mm hmm. And they were these like intensive classes that you would spend like, like I said, you'd spend upwards of 12 hours a day. And I think they just ranged, but it was promoting like changing your life for the better. And because of the fact that it was based on like pseudosciences and actually had someone who specialized in it, like Nancy, there was success with this. Like we said, like people were seeing results in their personal lives and that would be very enticing to some celebrities. Yes. The first and most prevalent celebrity that joined this particular cult is Allison Mack. If you were around in the mid to late 
I want to say early because I remember like it was on when Dawson's Creek was on. I want to say Smallville. Mm -hmm. There was a show called Smallville. It was on the CW, I'm pretty sure. And it was like a Superman TV show. It was like Superman the Teen Years. (laughs) And Allison Mack played a character on that show. I can't remember her name. Didn't look it up. Basically, she was recruited by Nancy and her daughter, Lauren. They basically went to Vancouver to recruit Vancouver, British Columbia, I should say, to recruit her. She, like I said, worked on Smallville. And her last actual acting gig, she was on a TV show called American Odyssey. And that was in 2015. And she basically stopped acting after that. I watched this interview with her and Keith and it was like, Keith said something and like she started crying and he's like, why are you crying? And she's like, I basically joined because I wanted to know how to become authentic, you know, because I can understand when you're an actress, when you're like, where am I going to go? Like after the show, like what if my show gets canceled? And I can understand being in like the Hollywood world, being very insecure because, you know, it's all about like your size. It's all about your looks. It's all about like kind of the shell of who you are as a person is the first judgment. And if you're like, especially with women and at that time, like if you weren't beautiful and thin and like somewhat talented, you just didn't work. And then, well, I'm so glad culture has changed a little bit. Mm -hmm. Me too. So she joined because she was trying to like figure out what she wanted in life. And she quickly started moving up the ranks. She really got into it. She started like giving them money, like right away was like, here's my money. You take this shit. Okay. And not just for classes, like she would make donations to it. She became a huge supporter and was like recruiting people to sign up for Nexium classes. Even to the point of, like, she persuaded her parents to take courses. Mac is also reported to be a founder of DOS, which Tara will talk about at a later time. (laughs) The next one, yes. (laughs) Yeah. And I won't go into that because, no, I don't want to. (laughs) It's going to be a lot, guys. It's going to be a lot, guys. (laughs) It is. It's a fuck ton. But basically, she got in. And while, while Nancy and Lauren were recruiting Mac, they also recruited her co-star, Christina Keurig. And this was back in 2006. And all that Christina will say is that she was recruited around the same time as Allison was. She took a few classes and had like stayed kind of in like the coursework up until like 2013 when she bounced. And her big, big statement is she never saw anything illegal or nefarious or strange which is great. Here's the thing. For the people who joined Nexium purely, because there were like thousands of people, like thousands of people. This was in the United States, in Canada, and in Mexico. It is like a huge thing. There were lots of people who were involved in this who weren't going to get caught up into like the sex cult thing of it later. They were literally just like these pawns who were like desperate to learn how to like fix their lives. And these people were promising guaranteed results. So I get it. Mm-hmm. Another Smallville alum is Callum Blue, who when I saw he was on this, I immediately got sad because I have been a huge fan of like the Princess Diaries franchise. And he plays the prince that she almost or the duke that she almost marries. And I was like, no, not you. <laughs> no. 
But basically, he joined Nexium in a really dark time in his life. He's quoted in an E2 Hollywood story of this. At the height of my popularity, I went through some trauma. My father took his own life and I continued working and I was caught up in a spiral of chaos because Hollywood can be chaotic and a noisy place. That is the type of people that like Keith and Nancy were like, ooh, you got some trauma? Give us your money. (laughs) Yeah. And basically, he was trying to come to terms with his father passing and all of that. And he started looking to the outside world to find answers, which led him to the executive success program. Then he started taking the Nexium workshops within that. But he didn't stay that long. Like, I think he just, like, took some self-help classes and, like, felt better about himself and then left. But he does feel guilty about, like, associating. And he left about the same time that Kristen left. So, like, 2013. I just want to think that they, like, took hands and, like, walked out together. (laughs) They're like, we're (laughs) done with this bullshit. We got this. Like, you know, that moment. There's about three. There's actually, there's a few more people I'm going to talk about. And the next one is a big player in this whole, like, breaking story, breaking into DOS, all that shit. And her name is Sarah Edmondson. And she is a Canadian actress. And you will find out that a lot of these people that are high up there are, like, in the entertainment industry, mainly acting. She's best known for supporting roles in various sci-fi cult TV shows, including Stargate SG-1. I don't know what that means. I'm just going to put that out there. It was always on, like, daytime TV, I feel like. I could be totally wrong, but that's what I remember. And (laughs) I wasn't into that, so I would change the channel. But, you know. (laughs) I get, like, so confused when, like, people like, Battlestar Galactica, Star Trek. I'm like, I don't know what is what. I'll come back to you guys later. Star Wars for life. (laughs) Yeah, right. In 2005, she was recruited to Nexium. She was looking for answers. And she basically went in there and she saw, like, people that she knew were already in these classes. And she's like, oh, okay. And imagine that. Imagine, like, walking into a room where you could recognize, like, five people and be like, oh, I'm safe here. But you weren't, honey. She would leave of her own accord in 2017. However, like, I don't call bullshit on the fact that she left because I think she was looking for a way out. Yeah. She basically left when the story broke about the sex cult. Oh, yeah. And I'll get into that next episode because it ties in. It intertwines with all that shit. Yeah. Yeah. She got, like, deeply involved. Like, she basically, she gave them thousands of dollars. She climbed up the ranks, just like Allie Mack. She would eventually go on to opening her own sect of the cult in Canada, where she gained commission from new members. So basically, like, she was running that shit. Also, fun little fact that Lauren Salzman, who we've talked, I've been mentioning, is Nancy Salzman's daughter. Yeah. She was Sarah's, like, best friend. In fact... Mm-hmm. Lauren was her maid of honor at Sarah's wedding. And this whole time I'm thinking, like, they don't actually really, like, talk about her husband all that much. But I'm like, where was her husband during all of this shit? Oh, I'll tell you. Oh, good. He'll come up later. Okay. And then, obviously, like, she's going to get involved with DOS, and we'll talk about that on the next episode. Yeah. Sarah is the reason that we have a lot of information on what we have. Oh, totally. Totally. Mm -hmm. She basically was like, I'm out. I'm telling everyone, fuck those (laughs) non-disclosures. Good for her. Good for her, though. Right. No, yeah. 
Definitely. Another actress I want to talk about, her name is Nikki Klein, and she was a member for 13 years, but she was like super secret member. Like Nobody knew she was a member at all. Mm. She's also in the sci-fi world. She's best known for her role in Battlestar Galactica. But how she basically became like, people were like, oh, she's a member of this is because she's married to Allison Mack. Oh, okay. Allegedly, their marriage is a like sham marriage to avoid like U.S. immigration laws. And I don't know which way it goes. Like, I don't know if, like, Allison was trying to go to Canada or the other way. But, like, yeah. I'll talk about Klein a little bit later because she was actually, like, part of the higher-ups in DOS as well. Mm. Obviously, she's married to Allison. So, you know, that shit. And we'll talk about those a little later. But she's a key player because, you know, she married to the woman. Another person from the show, from Battlestar Galactica, is Grace Park. Very little is known about her involvement with the cult. They know she's a member and that, or she was a member, and basically that she left in 2017 when it hit media. So no one really knows what she went through, what level she was. And in all honesty, like, I'm really glad that this group of people haven't become like, well, this person was involved in that. Like, there's not a lot of, other than, like, saying, like, this person did these illegal things. Like, as long as people were just, like, involved, but not, like, doing the illegal shit, people aren't pointing fingers. A next person, she's she's a celebrity, but she's, like, a daughter of a celebrity. But she has a big role in this, too. India Oxenberg. So India Oxenberg is the daughter of the actress Kathleen Oxenberg, who is best known for her role on Dynasty. Like, the original, not the remake. And she was introduced to the group in 2011. The really weird thing is like I was I watched a lot of like Megan Kelly interviews with Catherine because basically Catherine was like my daughter's involved in the cult and I want her out and she went public and that she felt very like I could die from this but when India got out finally she went back and talked to like she went on the show again Catherine did and she's like admits like I'm the one like my daughter she was 19 she had just gotten out of culinary school she wanted to like start a like a business with her friend so I thought hey let's get you into some like mentorship like business like professional development type trainings and you know Catherine is like a self-proclaimed like spiritualist where she like looks for that thing like she's always trying different types of like religious experiences like and it makes sense like if you were sold that this is a personal and professional development like of course you're gonna do this and so she actually took a couple of the classes and she brought her daughter India along but then Catherine was like something feels weird because Catherine knew Callum and Callum was kind of in that like leaving stage of Nexium. and so Catherine was like maybe no but India was like, hell yeah, and jumped right on in. Not a lot was known about what India did during the time, but we're going to come back to her because there's a lot of, well, I mean, because there's a lot of stuff that goes on with DOS. But Catherine was really desperate. Like she even said, I'm desperate to save my daughter. I want to help other young women, and I'm desperately hoping the authorities will take notice and investigate. And guess what? Nobody was listening to her. Like, zero people. Like, she was, like, going to, like, DAs and, like, investigators, and they were like, there's nothing we can do. Yeah. But, you know, they did it in Waco. Why couldn't they do it here? Right. So the final two people I want to talk about, I kind of mentioned earlier, they are the Bronfman sisters. So it's Sarah and Claire. And they joined in 2002. And just so that you know, one of them was actually arrested along with like Allison and Keith. Yep. Claire was actually arrested 
by federal agents on July 24th, 2018 in New York and was charged with money laundering and identity theft in connection to Nexium activity. And like more shit will come out about her. But like, we're not going to talk about that right now. <laughs> but like, I just, oh my God, this girl. I was watching an interview because there's also this other guy that helped like break the story. And his name is Frank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Frank is crazy. But, um, but like in a good way, kind of a good bad way. So when Frank was dealing with them and like telling out his dirt, he basically realized that like $65 million had gone into the market and like in the commodities market and was lost because Keith was like investing their money for them. And when they were like asking the girls, like, did you give him this money to invest? They basically blamed their father saying that like their father, who is, you know, the president and like owner of like Seagram's liquor company. They basically were like, uh, he like manipulated the commodities market against us. So like we lost all that money, but like we didn't really lose that money. And I'm like, no, one person cannot like why? <laughs> no. Yeah. And it was like all in one company. Like they put like $65 million into like one company, which is like the dumbest thing you can ever hear. So that kind of brings into like the big celebrities. I'm sure there's more, but like obviously I can't track them all down. <laughs> <laughs> So obviously we've talked about the fact that little is known about the actual training, but I did find on the interweb the 12-point mission statement of Nexium. It's a full-page document, so I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to summarize it for you. So basically, <laughs> this is the and this is like government, I found it. It is actually like an exhibit. This is a piece of evidence. Mm, okay. It has a little evidence tab at the top. So yeah. I'm not like breaking any laws because obviously this was put here for some reason. And I'm pretty sure the New York Times posted it. So like to other people. <laughs> okay. So basically it's what they're saying. Like the very first, I'm going to read you the first statement, the first sentence. It is that success is an internal state of clear, honest knowledge of what I am, my value in the world, and my responsibility for the way I react to all things. It goes on to talk about how, like, if you're a part of this, you're not a victim. You have to choose to not be a victim and that you have to commit to being successful, that you, if you want to be successful, you have to, like, raise above everybody else and, like, interdependence type stuff. And it's like, this is what it says is, like, success in my own right is my earned success, which is a very difficult statement to say because I'm like, this is this is babble. <laughs> And, like, basically, that's talking about, like, you can't steal success, that, like, you know, tribute is a form of payment and honor, which we will talk about when we get into Vanguard Week, people. And basically, it just, like, goes on, like, to say it again, like, we don't steal success. Success is earned. A world of successful people will be will be a better world indeed. A world devoid of hunger, theft, dishonesty, envy, and insecurity. People will no longer try to destroy each other, steal from each other, down each other, or rejoice at others' demise. Success, ethics, and integrity are co-inspirational. I pledge to share and enroll people. <laughs> I love that. So like it literally goes this. But the last sentence of this is, I pledge to share and enroll people in ESP and its mission for myself and to help make the world a better place to live. So like literally in their mission statement, it's like, go out and bring more people in here. And honestly, this is like, this is the best MLM scam ever because I mean, I've, I've sold Mary Kay in my past life, so I understand what this is and stuff like that. But this is like, hey, better yourself and better other people. And guess what? You could get paid for it. So it's it's a tricky little biatch. Mm -hmm. 
there's some like language that they use. So like if, for instance, Tara, if you are a bad person to me, you are a parasite or a luciferin. A luciferins. A luciferin. <laughs> luciferins, yes. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. And then you can be potent. And if people are like bothering you, they are suppressive. Like you can suppress people. Oh. It's all about like uplifting yourself mm-hmm. and suppressing those who have negative thoughts, which is basically how they get you to believe like the outside world is lying to you because they're like, just kidding. That person is a parasite and they are going to try to like mess your mind. You, when you enter the room for like a session, you like bow. They do special handshakes. Oh. And at the beginning, they have this like ritual hand clap thing like everyone claps basically just did it i'm a part of it now apparently you know what i think of when you did that in dodgeball when that evil team did the little like snake thing (laughs) (laughs) i love it and then they would like before the meeting would start they would like huddle together and then they would recite the fucking 12 point mission statement like it would be like let's all group hug and then report and like reply that we're good guys and you're like that's not No, that's not how this works. (laughs) And if you don't like it, you are made fun of, suppressed, or scorned. So if you don't like it, they want to get you the fuck out. Because that's the thing. Like, this literally survives on the fact that there's, like, you know when you watch... (laughs) You know when you watch movies and there's like that really hippie person who's like, no, bad energy, all good energy. Mm. That's what this kind of reminds me of. It's like, which sounds peaceful. It's like, no, oh, you're being negative. It's like those people who are like, you're being negative. You need to leave. And you're like, no, negativity can actually be a positive thing if you're like pointing out like, maybe you shouldn't touch the running chainsaw there, Chad. Like, (laughs) just because you think your hand won't come off doesn't mean reality won't do that. Yeah. So that is what I have about Nexium and its craziness and the people who get involved. I mean, it's just you're like, oh, good gracious. <laughs> Literally. Oh, my gosh. All right, guys. Well, this is going to wrap up part one of Nexium. On Thursday, we'll have a stabby. And the following Monday, we'll have a spooky episode plus, you know, our Thursday stuff. So in two weeks, we will have the other half of this ready for you. So buckle in. And (laughs) if you're familiar with this case or this cult, we would love to know what your thoughts are as well. But yeah, we will go ahead and sign off and we will see you Thursday. Bye, guys. Bye. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.